0: Welcome to Flashes of DEI, a podcast where we explore topics and ideas related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. My name is Stavros Atsis. I go by he, him, his pronouns, and I'm the Director of Equity Assessment and Impact in the Division of People, Culture, and Belonging.
1: And my name is Katie Mattis. I use they, them, their pronouns, and I serve as a Director in our Division of People, Culture, and Belonging.
0: And today we're talking data, specifically data equity, which looks at the ways in which data is collected analyzed, interpreted, and distributed through an equity lens. To help us do that, we've got a great guest. Would our cool colleague introduce themselves to to our listeners?
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Amanda Dolan. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I am the Director of Data Governance and Analytics for Kent State.
1: Yeah. And Amanda does so many cool things at the university and really helps us, I think, make our data and our processes a lot more equitable. So super thankful that you're willing to join us and talk with us here today. And our first question to kind of kick things off uh, is to just kind of talk data in general. Could you share about what data you tend to work with uh, in your area? What does data look like?
2: So I'm going to try to make this as brief as I can because <laughs> it's a lot and we <laughs> we really are the super stewards as I think of us of the university's data. So the university as you can imagine has an enormous amount of data that we work with for every person to do their job at this university, they're using some type of data. And the main system of record we have, which is called an ERP, it's the Enterprise Resource Planning. So it's most companies have one of these and it houses your HR data. For us, since it's higher ed specific, it has all of our student data, Mm. faculty data, benefits, Uh, All sorts of things related to what what you need to collect and have to run a sustainable organization. There's all sorts of things that we that we collect to do our job. So it's also really important that we keep that protected. Mm -hmm. Because it is such sensitive, personally identifying information that we need to have. Mm -hmm. That's our largest system of record. And we talk about that as being the source of truth for a lot of our student data. So if you're a student taking classes right now, then you have a transcript. That transcript and all of your class history, the classes you're currently enrolled for, are all housed in Banner, which is our ERP. It's an illusion product in case anybody is interested (laughs) in that. Um, But that's where it comes from. And then we have all these other different subsystems or smaller systems. Some are homegrown applications that we create, some are third party systems that we contract with. So, an example would be of a homegrown, uh, it's not a data center. Data application, we'll say, is our KSU Mobile. So KSU Mobile is a homegrown application that we made, but it collects data. It Mm -hmm. knows what you've looked at. It knows what campus you've selected. It knows what type of events you want to go to or that Mm -hmm. you're interested in. It can send you alerts based on those preferences. That's all data that we collect. But that's separate than what is integrated into Banner, our ERP. So one of the ways that my area helps the organization is that we can create a connection between those two data systems. So right now we have a data warehouse and we have these different places where data are collected and stored, and they don't always necessarily talk to each other. So you Mm. can't gain insights on students' behavior in KSU Mobile by looking at your banner data. And just looking at your KSU mobile data may not give you the entire picture of what is the student looks like. So you may want to bring those two things together to be able to gain greater insights on how we can better support and help our students. And you have to do that by creating data integrations. So one of the things that I do in my role is I think of myself as a translator. Hmm. So there's different like data languages. There's different a lot of people would call it coding, but it's a data language. So Banner uses this. You can pull it out through certain type of data integration, certain softwares, KSU Mobile, same thing. And we have to translate those two languages to get them to talk to each other in a meaningful way so that when it provides some output or reporting to a user, it's meaningful, it's understandable, right. and they can actually do something with it. And it's a apples to apples comparison instead of like an apples to orangutan. Comparison and data equity can come into that. We haven't talked about that yet, but it's something that we think about when um, I mentioned the word governance. So, I govern data, and by governing data, I mean that we are making sure that if you are looking at a report in this one system that's talking about an enrolled student, and then you look at a report over here that's talking about an enrolled student we are using the same definition. We've governed that term across different systems so that it means the same thing across different platforms. So I am looking at, on a day-to-day basis, we work with finance data, HR data, student data, research data, and um, those are like sort of the main big data points that we're working with because we really work across the university's data. That's a
1: lot of data. I yeah. that sounds so complicated. <laughs> it can be. It really can be. Yeah. And it
2: takes a lot of conversations and it takes a lot of consensus. Yeah. So to really to create better efficiencies and even better equity, better access to data, better transparency, it really helps to have a, a person that can help manage to bring all of those things together. Right. And we are, we are not um, in a large group of universities that have a data governance office. So we have positioned ourselves ahead of some of our competitors by having that. Right. But if you think about the, the inefficiencies and inaccuracies you can have without data governance, the registrars could be pulling data And they're using a definition. And then I work at the Eshtabula campus and I pull data and I'm using my definition. And I'm also pulling the same data that Mm -hmm. the registrar's office is pulling. Not only have I created inefficiencies because we're both doing the same thing, but I've created inaccuracies because Mm -hmm. then when we get together, we're like, well, your data doesn't match my data. And then you have to have a reconciliation about
1: who's right. And that takes time. One of the things our VP in the division, Dr. Gooden, has consistently said is the process is just as important as the endpoint. And so, having those conversations, doing that type of work ahead of time is just as important as having the good data pools at the end. That takes a lot of time, though. It yeah. really,
2: it really does take a lot of time. And some of the things that we always have to keep in mind is we're public institutions, so we report data to right. other. Places for either accreditation, for a state subsidy for instruction, to the state or enrollment numbers, all sorts of other places, the National Center for Education Statistics. So sometimes we have to use their definitions because they say, this is what an enrolled student is, so that's what it is. We can take that, and we usually use that as a template to say, okay, if this is what these folks are saying, then does this definition work for us? Most of the time it does. We can usually get about 80% there, but we might say, you know what? In their definition, they're including all students, whether they're degree seeking or not. Whereas we might say that we're really only interested in enrolled students who are degree seeking. So if you're getting an enrollment report, that's official, we'll say it's going to exclude a senior guest student. Mm -hmm. Senior guest students are retirees who take classes for free that don't pay tuition. So you can understand why we would exclude something like that. It doesn't really help us in making business decisions or resource planning, if you will, to have 200 senior guests making it look like we have bigger numbers than we might. And sharing that information is, is helpful with the equity of the data as well. Making sure that people understand the context of how we gathered this information, what it is, what it isn't, will also help them understand what situations can I apply this information to to make a decision.
0: Yeah, I, I think you, you touched on a lot of great points on whether it's equity in collection or in the process, um, because as you mentioned, depending on who's collecting the data and who is on the other end as a user, um, it has to be clear what the assumptions are and how the data was collected and and how those data definitions that you mentioned, what that all means because I mean, bottom line, it affects the interpretation of how we use the data. Yep. Um, and you also touched on how complicated data collection can be at a large institution. Generally, how can we look at data collection through an equity lens?
2: Yeah, the collection part of it we 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 collect all of it right so any you know there's a lot of things that we we have to collect that we're required to collect to um i talk a lot about students but i'll switch you know to faculty staff right so you're hired Mm -hmm. here you have to fill out certain things to to be here and to get paid and to pay taxes and get your benefits and and all of that things so for the most part, um, that data collection is a, is, is potentially determined by what and how the data are going to be used for. But we do have some flexibility in there. So for, for example, we used to not allow anybody to use a chosen name. And part of that was because we didn't need to collect that to do the business mm-hmm. that we needed to do so we needed the legal name. But from an equity purpose, people have the right to be called what they choose to be called. And Kent State recognizes that internally, even if we need your legal name for your tax purposes, there's no reason that your email shouldn't say your chosen name. There's no reason that if you're taking a class that it can't because those aren't legal documents that we need to be required for, but it took us changing our policy because we wanted to be more equitable in order to collect that data. And it took work on the part of everyone, all of the data stewards across the university. And when I say data steward, I mean the person who's responsible for allowing allowing access to the data. When I talk about a data owner, I'm talking more about somebody who was responsible for the quality of the data. So we needed both of those people to agree that this is something that is worthy of us collecting and worthy of us sharing with others because we believe in treating everybody with the dignity and respect that they deserve to be called what they want to be called. But that took effort on the part of Kent State to do that in a data collection and sharing way, because some of those systems that I talked about at the beginning only allow for one name. They do not have the flexibility that we were seeking. So we had to determine processes to and governance to determine which, if it's only going to be one name... Are we going to show the chosen name here? Are we going to show the legal name? And we made decisions on those processes depending on where that information went. That was a long way of saying that, but I think the example helps,
1: I hope. Yeah, and I think it's important too, because honestly, being involved in some of that work and getting chosen names and pronouns as part of, and gender identity, right? More expansive options going in. I was like, why can't we just easily Mm -hmm. (laughs) collect data? right? Why can't we just easily have this data that's collected be also sent to all these other systems? It seems like it should be simple. Yep. But I think the like length of your answer, you could have gone on much longer because it's way more complicated yeah. uh, and takes a lot more work than I initially thought right. um, coming into these conversations. And so equity, doing equitable stuff oftentimes takes longer, right? It's not right. always the easier route in terms of uh, the work that we do and the thought that we put into things yeah. like it takes more time and it takes more effort.
2: It has to be a priority of the organization for, yeah. for folks to do it. It really does. Yeah. So I think a lot of times when it comes to data, good school of thought is like, it's simple, but not easy. Mm. So there are things that it, it is simple to say, we're going to do this, but then it's not easy to then make sure that it happens seamlessly and correctly every time because of all those those data integrations that I was talking about and the downstream effects of those things. So it's simple to collect something, but then it's not easy to then decide who do I share it with? Who gets to see it? What is the context? And are we hurting or helping by putting it in in this place or not? So, you know, we've talked about and I guess I'll talk about sharing data and through an equity lens as well, context really matters with with data. And there's two examples that I'm thinking of. One is um, the gender identity that we've started to talk about, and we are collecting gender identity. That is something that very few people at this institution will ever see Mm -hmm. because they don't need to see it. So we follow Mm -hmm. a principle of least privilege is what it's called with data. And that means... It's a very fancy way of saying, if you don't need to know, you don't get to know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like you're on a need to know basis. If you don't need to know the agenda identity of your student, then we're not going to show it to you because all it does is put the student's private information at risk. Mm -hmm. So unless there's some value to you having that information, we're not going to open it up to everybody. And we bet we have to balance that with things because we want to be transparent, but we also want to be protective Mm -hmm. of our Data, Because data, I think the thing that's really been clear is data is one of our largest assets as a university. And Mm -hmm. we can use it to make better decisions, to have better resources, to save money, to be more equitable, we can use it for all sorts of great things, and we need to view it as an asset. And then I'll go back to the, the contact. But if the contact isn't right, you're not going to make the right business decisions. So if I send you a report that shows that all African-American freshmen who are Pell eligible have a lower GPA than Caucasian students who were not Pell eligible. And for those who don't know, Pell eligible means that you are awarded grants. So you generally have a lower income level. And so you're going to receive more money. So that could lead to a very bad and unequitable business decision mm-hmm. that says, well, we're just not going to admit any more African-American students who are eligible. That's a terrible idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> looking at the context and saying, if we go back farther, we can see that generally the students might have come from a school district that was underfunded and underserved. So therefore, they didn't have the college credit or advanced placement classes that this other classroom had in a richer district. So it's it's kind of this legacy inequity that that they bring with them into mm-hmm. their freshman year. And what that could tell us with the right context and through an equity lens is that We need to get the right support to these students immediately. And how can we do that the best we can? What type of supplemental instruction, tutoring, support, whatever the case may be, study groups, we might need to get to these students, summer melt programs, whatever the case may be. That's that's more of an equitable approach to it by finding solutions to those inequities that students bring in with them rather than creating other additional barriers that make that inequity even more exacerbated.
1: Yeah. And I think what you're talking about right now, I mean, comes a little bit into data analysis, right? So if we just take data at face value, we might not get a full, complete picture, right? We need other information. We need other context. And so, how do we keep all of that in mind when it comes to data analysis and interpretation? How do we do that equitably? So,
2: part of the way we do that is to do some data literacy training so we have some some data literacy programs that have been across the institution and that really is more of the institutional research and effectiveness um, area that does a lot of that and it's helping people understand some of these contexts it's 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 the balance i think between empowering folks to get their own data and have access to their own data, but also understand that there are limitations to then the analytics side of it. So you can pull the reports you want. You can look at those numbers, but I don't have a full answer for you because I think it's a question that we're all still struggling with and yeah. answering together is then then who does the analysis on that? Who is qualified to do that? And some of that is through governance and making sure that people when they're getting those numbers, they're all meaning the same thing and they have an understanding of what they're looking at. But those departments need to be empowered because they know their processes and their data better than anybody else to be able to make some decisions and analytics about it. So it's it's really a balancing act. We're developing policies around analytics governance and we're... I'd say, in the middle of it. But that's why we we use words like unofficial uh, reports, official reports, certified reports, things like that that can help folks understand if they're looking at something that was an ad hoc or if they don't necessarily know how that information was put together. Um, anything that you would add, Stavros?
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. It's, it's absolutely not an easy answer. And there's lots of probably ways that we can uh, do a better job of in the analysis interpretation aspect of it, make it more collaborative, not just having one person review the data and have their analysis. Like make sure you pass it around, look at your colleagues. Everyone can bring a different lens to it, ask different questions to really get at the report. Uh, Because whatever that analysis is, going to obviously influence any recommendations or actions that that come from it. Um, so I, I think that's a, a big portion. I always like to include people in, you know, once we're doing something at a division level that we collected data in in our developer report, I want a lot of eyes on it. make sure that things I may have written or or summarized not just clear but could be accurate based on the data that we collected. And I think that's where your process comes into play a, a little bit more. A lot of it will depend on the individual report or the the goal of what you're trying to do.
1: Right. Based on what you're saying too, data literacy, but also like equity literacy, like knowledge mm-hmm. of those systemic oppressions mm-hmm. that happen. So that way, when you see that data of the differences between the performance of students, you're not like, well, those students are just lazy, right? But you're like, <laughs> oh, there are reasons for that. So yes. I feel like having an understanding of... Societal context and oppression <laughs> might go a long way too.
0: Yeah, because the data point's the same, right? It's just right. how like, each person can interpret it differently. And, and that's when you know people have this lack of trust with what comes out in, in um, reports. And it could be a misinterpretation of assumptions and how the data was collected versus um, a mismatch between what the data show and then that analyst's interpretation. Uh, So there are a lot of different points where, you know, a user or, or the public can lose kind of confidence in some of the reporting that that's that's out there.
2: You want to be able to answer questions immediately as to why does this report say this? And this one says this, if you say, I don't know, well then guess what? They're never gonna trust any other data that you ever show them yeah. until the end of time. Yeah, it's yeah, you, know, you can't
0: yeah. say it depends, it's not allowed. <laughs> right,
2: right, you have to say that, you have to answer those questions first you know, yeah. and we, we have done that in, in our office, you know, we'll make a dashboard and then we'll be very, very critical of it because generally the person who made the dashboard understands everything that they did. Right. And they're showing it to somebody who have no idea what they're talking about. So to get those definitions and to say to them, like, to scrutinize it and say, I have no idea what this means. Yeah. I could interpret, Oh, I would have totally interpreted that completely different than the way that you just told me to. So, there's a communication element to data as well that may be, I guess, underappreciated in some ways. Mm. You know, there's, I mentioned the context to everything, but we've all seen memes and examples of bad charts and bad data <laughs> and just, you know, a totally misleading graphic that says the opposite of what it makes it looks like it yeah. says. So it's it's being aware of, of those things and and that's part of that data literacy is having that kind of critical eye on things but it's also our responsibility as the stewards of the data to make it as easy to interpret as possible. And another another point I want to bring up that has data equity has come up a lot in is in predictive analytics and in machine learning. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's where Uh, we are looking at one thing in enrollment management of recruiting students. And, you know, what are the data points that tell us that a student is likely to come to Kent State? And if we know that these data points mean that the student's likely to come to Kent State, we'll spend more time with that student, let's say, than another student. But let's say I threw in international students into that lens. And one of the things we know that that helps determine if a student is going to attend Kent State is they did an on-campus visit. Mm -hmm. And so I look at those and I don't know that those are international students. And I say, well, none of these students came to an on-campus visit, don't even talk to them anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a a simple Mm -hmm. example, but it could happen if we didn't do the due diligence of making sure that we didn't include international students in our data set Mm -hmm. when we were building this model of predictive analytics. We also need to put in parameters around sampling bias. So if we're, we're a predominantly Caucasian institution, our sample of Caucasians is going to be larger than our sample of other ethnicities. So how do we account for that? What is the best practice mm-hmm. for making sure that we don't have that bias in our data model? Because we just don't, we don't have the numbers as great. I will say that uh, one of the goals that I have over the next year is to come up with some ethical use of data standards. And whenever we talk about the ethical use of data, we talk about data equity and we talk about discrimination and bias in in the collection and analysis of data. What I really appreciate is that we have those conversations very early and often when we talk about data and what's coming next it's it's just things that we have to be cognizant of
0: and
1: address yeah i think you know once you get that ethical stuff down that could be a really cool part two to this data conversation right um yeah there's some
2: really interesting and this kind of has to do with equity but i'll i'll throw it out there as a teaser um, (laughs) of this idea of something called the right to be forgotten Oh, and yes. We are, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're having a lot of conversations around, is that something in our data ethics that we can talk about is the right to be forgotten? Had a great conversation with, uh, her name's uh, Virginia Pressler in University Libraries, where Kent State has actually done some of that work with the student media groups and the Kent State where they have a process where we do allow people the right to be forgotten. And some of our but we have it's it's usually it's committee work and you do it case by case basis. And you have to judge, you know, weigh all of the the goods, the the goods, the bads and the uglies with with what you do with that. And it's a very, very interesting ethical topic, especially for journalists, data scientists, uh, media writers, all sorts of all sorts of folks. So those are the conversations we're having around around ethics, but it was really cool to hear that Kent State had already started down that path. Yeah.
0: So what I heard in that, Amanda, is you already committed to a part two. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. We have, we have that on yes. record. <laughs> we have a part two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's a year from now.
1: <laughs> we can give some time between, yeah. Okay, okay yeah. good.
0: <laughs> well, as we wrap up, do you have any resources you like to recommend for folks interested in learning more?
2: Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about The Right to Be Forgotten, check out Radiolab. They have a podcast that is called The Right to Be Forgotten, and it actually focuses on the cleveland.com. So it's even like very close to us. That's who they interviewed and and did a source on. If you are interested in um, more about data governance, we do have a SharePoint site. Um, I don't know that I can just rattle it off for you. We can link all of these right things the you notes. mentioned
1: in our <laughs> show notes. Yes. Perfect.
2: So we have the data governance SharePoint site so you can get a better idea of some of the things that we do around data governance. And uh, we are working on data handling guided, data loss prevention to, again, make sure that we are keeping all of. The university's data is secure and not open to, you know, uh, ransomware hacking things like that. Because mm. um, it's 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 even more becoming like it's not if it happens it's when. And so the more proactive and prevention we can do to be ready uh, if it does happen, yeah. to us, you know we we will be. So so data governance does really cross over into data security privacy, which is um, really more under the IT purview. Um, and, and the only other thing I'll say is that I, a lot of the reason I believe that Kent State decided to do data governance in IT is because in 2023, you're not using... If you have data, there's some technology that you are yeah. using to get that mm-hmm. data. You are not sending yeah. out paper surveys and taking paper notes and... right. Counting them in on Abacus.
1: Yeah. yeah. I know I've gone through Qualtrics training um, through our IT department too. Well, thank you uh, so much for like joining us and sharing. There's... If- there really is so much. I feel like we just scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate it. It's a good scratch. Um, <laughs> and thanks, everybody else, for tuning in and listening. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about us here in People, Culture, and Belonging, uh, we've got a couple different ways you can get connected. First, you can check out our website. Um, that has our new URL, uh, which would be kent.edu slash people and dash culture.
0: You can also connect and reach out to us through email at diversity at kent.edu or connect with us on social media currently at DEI Kent State across platforms. We'll see you next month with a new episode. Thanks.
1: Bye. Bye,